that allowed them to look back over the last year or two to connect on that this Bitcoin thing does have to do with inflation, but it's actually solving it permanently. And while other things can hedge inflation like real estate or um, equities, Bitcoin is not correlated to dollar. It's actually uh, the one thing that that is designed to replace it. If you actually think about Bitcoin, like what it is, what it represents, like like one, there's nothing less American than the U.S. dollar. Uh, you can't print my money. You know, you can print your own money, but um, I can opt into something that, that you can't print. The thing that this whole thing is built on, uh, that it's not endowed by a government, and that we have to, the government exists to protect those rights. Communism and socialism is the opposite. It's like this this flawed belief system that somehow the collective is benefited by the collective when in reality it's just some crony corrupt people that want power. This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal family or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. Parker, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, excited to be on the podcast, have you in Austin here at the Bitcoin Commons, and uh, look forward to the discussion. I know this is my first time in Austin. I've never been to the Bitcoin Commons, never been to Austin, so it's it's cool to check it out. Yeah, I know that we've uh, spoken before on um, like video chats and and whatnot, but you know, I think it's the first time we've met in person, and kind of it's, it is a little bit odd that like you know for all the time that this is the first time to get get to Austin. So excited to to welcome you here and and look forward to the chat. Yeah, absolutely. I want to definitely dive into your book gradually and suddenly. Um, it's really really good. Um, but first I want to talk about Bitcoin is not a hedge. It's a presentation that you gave pretty recently. And I think we posted on the unchained YouTube. It got like a quarter million views. What chord do you think you struck with that presentation? Yeah, I, like I definitely think more so than probably anything else that I've done, uh, in like a single piece of content, I feel like that, that did strike a chord. That would probably be like the terminology that I'd use around it. Um, and I could kind of sense that in the room, um, kind of when I was giving the presentation, um, and then clearly kind of like it, the way that it was received online reinforced that. And, um, you know, I don't really have a great explanation either, you know, cause I don't think it was necessarily, um, you know, um, it, it's hard to put a finger on I If I was going to try to explain it away, um, it was kind of connecting something that um, in, a, in a short form way uh, is both fundamental to Bitcoin, but also made sense of something that didn't previously make sense to people. Um, and I think that being able to kind of carry that message of like, hey, there is something actually that's distinguished between something being a hedge to inflation and a solution to inflation. And if you've heard that it's one thing, but it functionally isn't, and that's not how it's adopted, and that you can connect dots for people in a way that lands in a, in a, in a short form way of logic as to why that's the case. I think that that that's probably, um, like what, what allowed it to resonate for people that it was probably the, the highest level view of Bitcoin. It spoke to a fundamental, but it also explains something, uh, in a logical way to people that didn't previously made sense that it allowed them to look back over the last year or two um, to connect on that this Bitcoin thing does have to do with inflation, but it's actually solving it 
permanently. And while other things can hedge inflation like real estate or um, equities, Bitcoin is not correlated to dollar. It's actually uh, the one thing that that is designed to replace it. And that, um, you know, you can't, you can't solve a broken money with uh, a new car or a new house or a new roof. The only thing that can that can solve a, a broken form of money is a, is a better form of money. And that's yeah. what Bitcoin is. Yeah. Yeah. I remember like over the last, I guess, two years or so, a lot of people would be like, oh, Bitcoin, what happened? It wasn't that inflation hedge that people expected because inflation, you know, Bitcoin went up before the inflation and then peak 2021, we had like the 8% inflation. And then after that, it went back down and everyone's like, what the heck? I thought Bitcoin was was the inflation hedge. Yeah. And, and like those, you know, I, I think in the piece I talk about or in, in the piece, but then also the presentation, um, I talk about this idea that's like, you know, over what time horizon, you know, because like if you zoom out, it is uh, effectively holding purchasing power and increasing in purchasing power. And that the only way that that could, quote, not be true is if you look at, a you know, a very short time horizon. Um, but it is. But but the reason why I, you know, we decided to give that as as a presentation one, I had written an article under the same uh, the same title, but. It is the most common question that I've gotten over the last 12 to 18 months, and it's a fair question um, because I think that a lot of people carry that message to be like, oh, well, if they can't get to them on a fundamental basis, uh, take a step back and just be like, well, it's a hedge, you know? And I think that that is a mistake because it ultimately misinforms people and that if you're just honest with them, that uh, that it will resonate and people will actually be able to understand things because they have to understand them logically at some level. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely encourage anyone that hasn't seen it already to definitely go check it out. It was a, a great video. I want to read one of the comments that was like kind of a question more to you. Yeah. And it, it says that he does not distinguish between bank reserves and retail money. And he says like bank reserves, which quote unquote, never leaves the banking system and retail money, which we use printing money is a way more complex mechanism. What would be your reply to, to a comment like that? Yeah, I, I, I get that a lot. Like a lot of like macro people, um, I think are pedantic and, and not in an insulting way. I think I think that that uh, distinction is ultimately both pedantic and, and wrong. Um, and that um, the only way that dollars are created are through the Federal Reserve um, and that reserves are lent out. Um, and they like this idea that like the reserves need to leave, leave the system to um, to be lent out, like, and, and to kind of like catch people up in this discussion, um, the Federal Reserve sets the number of reserves, the base money, and then banks uh, create deposits via lending. But if a bank is going to create a loan, then those dollars are going to be used by the people that they're lending to, and they actually leave the bank. They move the, they move out of one account into another, like. The way that that Silicon Valley Bank was becoming insolvent was because their reserves were going from Silicon Valley Bank to a different bank. So it was like while they don't leave the quote system, they move around, and there's there's serious implications of that, um, and that uh, the credit system as a whole could not have metastasized to the size that it that it has if the Fed didn't consistently add more base money. That the thing that matters most, the actual printing of money, is the base money, uh, because if they didn't print that, then the expansion of credit would just grow and then contract when it became obvious that um, that that it wasn't sustainable. But when in this world, when it becomes unsustainable, rather than bad debts being written off and the credit system being right sized, the Fed puts more base money in. 
Um, and like you couldn't show up from your ATM and get money out if the Fed didn't put more base money in. Um, and so that the, the whole thing that matters is the base money, the base money expansion. That's what affords or allows the, this broader, you know, kind of thinking about deposits in your checking account to grow because really those don't leave the system either. You know, yeah. when you, when you go to Whole Foods and spend your deposit, uh, it stays in the system. Even if you, you know, you know, somebody can go to the ATM and get the cash, but realistically, you know, 99.9% of the activity quote stays within the system. So I think that those people that say that reserves aren't let out, they, they have a misunderstanding of the way the banking system works and the cause and effect of, of what drives credit expansion and, and all starts and stops with the Fed hitting the button to create more actual dollar reserves in the system. Yeah. Would you say comments like that or macro types have like a very, like a shorter time horizon, whereas you're taking a more longer time time horizon and saying like it's inevitable that more base money will have to be created. You may not know like, hey, it's going to happen in the next three months or six months, but over the long run, it's basically a guarantee. I, I think that it more stems from like the, the macro people who would describe themselves as quote macro. They, um, they, they think in terms of like, um, uh, like almost like pluses and minuses, like math. They think in math rather than like the real world um, and they fail to see the forest for the trees. They're like, well, actually the reserves aren't let out. And you're like, well, like look at what's actually happened. Like the credit system is this large and the base money has increased. Like what is the relationship between the base money? And they actually just miss something because they, it's almost like they're, they're focusing on a particular detail without able to, to see the big picture. Yeah. And I think many times there's a, there's a translation to this with Bitcoin that if you focus on any one point about Bitcoin too, with, with too much granular focus, you will, you will almost for that reason, miss the forest for the trees that you have to be able to see multiple things and, and, and digest the, the, the significance of things together rather than myopically looking at a single detail. And, and that's where I think, you know, kind of when those, ma when macro people say that like reserves aren't actually lent out, um, that, that, that's part and parcel to that idea. It's like, no, like, what do you think happens? Like, how do you think a bank run happens if yeah. there's no consequence to, to actual reserves and how they move through a banking system? Yeah. How do you think about helping people see the, the forest instead of just the individual individual trees? Like you've given so many presentations on Bitcoin, so many presentations on the macro environment. What do you think is like a quick summation of what has worked best when trying to convince people to see the forest? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, you know, and I can answer this because I've, I'd say, taken the wrong route, you know, enough times just by trial and error to then have arrived at, you know, kind of my the, the way that I currently, um, you know, help, you know, if I'm going into that setting of Bitcoin is not a hedge to be able to, um, connect with, with people and not overwhelm them. Um, and so I think that that's probably the, the greatest focus is it's like early on when I would start to explain Bitcoin to people, I would, I would really start with like the fundamentals of money, like coincidence of wants and, you know, um, you like something like deep rooted about what money is. And I think that that's actually the, the, like that's critical to somebody's understanding of Bitcoin, but it's, it's not where to start them. And that the approach that I have taken more, like if I'm in the setting of the Bitcoin is not a hedge presentation at old Parkland in Dallas, or, you know, the Bitcoin one lesson presentations I used to do that were of smaller settings of like 10 to 15 people is starting with a problem. 
uh, and that's what I did in that presentation. Uh, it's like people have to connect that they have a problem because they know that they have a problem. Um, but if you can articulate in a way that connects their problem to Bitcoin at the highest level, that, that focuses on something that can distill it down to kind of one high level idea, and that's the 21 million, that it's like you have a problem, you know that you have a problem, let me help you understand it a little bit better than even you you could articulate yourself and let me connect that 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 problem to bitcoin because oftentimes people one of the things that trips them up with bitcoin if they're looking at it in a vacuum and they're trying to evaluate it on a standalone basis it's very logical to look at bitcoin as a solution in search of a problem um but if you flip that script and you say you've got a problem, you know you have a problem, it's the printing of money, and that problem that you have, this is this is actually related to it, and this is actually the solution. Um, so, it, so it's like starting there, and I think that part of that wakes people up from some like, you know, thinking about Bitcoin in a different perspective. It's a, it's a you know, for better or worse, it's a tactic to like, I mean, it's the right tactic, but it's a tactic to, to show up with something that they maybe didn't expect to hear to get their attention and then to to simplify it in a way that's like, okay, if that's the problem and the problem's printing money, what's the solution to it? The, the, the thing that can't be printed in the 21 million supply. And it's like, yeah, there's a whole rabbit hole that they're gonna need to go down, but you have to capture their attention in a way that, that lands an idea that they can connect with with reason and logic to say like okay I, now i want to go down more because i can't i can't get them to the point of intuitively understanding bitcoin in a 30 minute conversation yeah. but that's not my job my job is or like the way i think about it in terms of like if i'm going to do a service to them and, and do a service to me to make my time worth it there is to uh to set the hook uh to get them interested to, to, to learn something about bitcoin and to connect it in a way that they might not have previously connected such that then they're incentivized to go deeper, to get to that point of like understanding the fundamentals of money and of, of like the, the coincidence of wants problem. Cause it's not that it's not significant. It's that if you start there, it's the surefire way to like have someone's eyes glaze over. Yeah. Um, and that if you do two things, if you start with, you have a problem, this is connected with it. And let me, let me focus on one idea to connect that problem to Bitcoin, the 21 million fixed supply. At the end, if the hook is set, then they're going to want to read the Bitcoin standard or, or you know, read any book about Bitcoin uh, to, to go many layers deeper. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a good point. Like if you don't have a problem, you're not going to be like intrinsically motivated to go learn more about Bitcoin. Um, I know like for me, the monetary properties of Bitcoin is really what resonated. And I was like, OK, that makes sense. But that was like after the fact that I recognized I had a problem and, you know, I wanted to store my wealth for you know, generations to come. So like, can we dive a little bit deeper into like the actual problem? Like you said, money printing, is that just, you know, people recognize that inflation's here, like they're losing their, their savings, they're forced to invest in a lot of different things. Like what, what is like the main key problem that like resonates with people in like a deeper level? Um, I think that it's when, when you connect or when I connect the scale of it, you know, when it's like, Hey, from 20, 19 to 2021 the fed printed five trillion dollars and that was more than all the money that had previously existed and that it's not as um i don't want to say trivial because because trivial i think most people already know that it's not trivial um but 
oftentimes it's it's thought of as this like well they just put more money in so things are just going to radically you know become more expensive and you know we put a little bit more money in and now people have more money and now things become more um more relatively expensive and we can just go down this path i think somewhere deep down people especially people who have created wealth and i don't mean creating wealth by trading other people's money i mean like creating wealth by uh building a product and delivering it to market in a way that creates greater abundance anybody who's run a business that's that's delivered a service to the market understands that there's something deeply wrong with uh and broken about the way that money is created but when when you when i when i kind of connect two things which is like the scale of it like the five trillion help people understand just how big of a number that is you know and that it's going to happen again with this idea that it's not just this marginal um you know push and pull and you know we you know we'll be able to survive in this state forever but that eventually it fails and it fails because money coordinates economic activity and if you create if you if you have the ability and do create quote money for free what it equates to is people going and you know i always think about like the most visceral thing being imagine the actual physical labor that's required to get oil out of the ground the human capital but also the time energy all everything in that supply chain if you can buy that output of labor for something that people can print the activity actually becomes unsustainable and so rather than the printing of money being this um uh trivialized consequence that the macro economists and the fed and the treasury try to sell to the american people or to the world that we can just live in this state what it actually causes is the the money to become impaired such that the one thing it's principally doing which is coordinating trade it can no longer do and that when people figure out the scale of the problem the 5 trillion and they're going to have to be 10 trillion to keep this puppet show going to it doesn't just go on forever and you know that because you know that like you know we all grew up learning as kids money doesn't grow on trees and ain't no such thing as a free lunch well they're printing free lunch is faster than ever before and it's unsustainable and it doesn't just add you know uh, up to you know beef being 5% more at the grocery store it it ends up with beef not being at the grocery store because money can't facilitate trade and if you don't focus on solving your actual problem getting a better form of money you're not going to have beef you're not going to have gas your your actual quality of life is going to go down and so the the consequence of money being broken is that trade can't happen and if trade can't happen that means you can't get the things that you previously took for granted that you didn't have to think about you know food showing up at your table so it's like the the problem's big and we'll solve it because humans are hyper resilient and adaptive but like if you cover your eyes and don't focus in on the problem and and figure out that you got to act and get to that solution not everyone necessarily survives but but humans do yeah we definitely do need to fix the money and i i think we are do you think people will figure out like hey this is a problem and like you know i need to get bitcoin or will a lot of people get left behind you know before it's too late um i don't want to be like more uh, it's like humans are adaptive like yeah. when you think about like in his, in the context of history of like you know bubonic plague and we're all here because some resilient people you know kind of powered through that it's like yeah like as a as a society like humans are adaptive and they 
they're sur- survivalists. So it's like, I think figuring out that like s- certain people aren't and like focusing in on that, that that's the negative side of it. But like in the optimistic side, it's like the people in the vast majority of them have a will to, to survive. And that ultimately comes down to like w- to water, right? Like if if you need water to survive, you're going to go seek out water and you're going to figure out that you're actually a lot more resilient and you can probably go a lot longer without water than you would think you can on a daily basis. Now, that the translation to that in Bitcoin, I think, is that like it might not be immediately observable to, to the majority of people today. Certainly not. If it were, Bitcoin would be in a very different state. But it's the same thing. They need money to survive and it's becoming more apparent that the money that they're using isn't working and they're going to seek out the solution that allows them to get water, yeah. you know, and that's, that's going to be Bitcoin. So it's like, yeah, like I don't have to like explain to myself the, the timeline or whenever, but it's like, if you anchor to logic and reason and the fact that humans are resilient and survival, it's like people are, are, are in the process of figuring out and it's going to become obvious to more people, you know, the further that time goes on. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think one of the things that's going to help people figure out is your new book that you just released. Um, and I know you basically repurposed a lot of your old essays into this book. Um, what made you want to write a book about Bitcoin? Yeah. So, I mean, I think initially when I decided to write about Bitcoin, it was that I, I had read the Bitcoin standard, an early copy of it. And then when it came out, I started handing that out like candy. <laughs> and, but I also recognized that there were things that like, I'd like to think that the Bitcoin standard was the, it was like light bulb going off for me. And so I recommend everybody read it. But then there were also things that I had to work through myself on like a reason and logic basis to test uh, in, a, in a very ordered way to allow kind of like the light bulb moment for me to consistently get back there. And so I kind of I, I hope that gradually and suddenly serves to be a kind of a perfect companion to the, the Bitcoin standard because it was really descriptive of my own journey of like, OK, history of money light bulb going off and then being able to order some of the, the residual questions, um, for myself. And, um, you know, I had, I I felt like I had something to to add to the discussion. Uh, and that the way I kind of thought about it going in was, well, if I can get the ideas in my head that I had to work through still to, to develop, um, conviction in, in like the logical order of, of why Bitcoin was money and why it was so resilient, that other people that think like myself that have this kind of more right side brain, you know, approach to, to, to life, um, that it would accelerate their path. So that was kind of really the initial inception to, to my writing in the first place. In addition to try to strum up business, you know, kind of, uh, for, for unchain of, of being on people's radar. And then, you know, for, for the changing it to a book, it was like, you know, it kind of takes something to be willing to put yourself out there on the internet, it's another level to, to make that even more permanent and put it in writing. Um, and so I, and, and also to package it together. So, so my, um, you know, kind of motivation to, um, to kind of shifting the graduate suddenly from an online version to a book version was to, um, to, to really help reach an audience that I probably couldn't online. And when you kind of think about it, it's like, if you're sitting there physically with a book, it's a better experience. And there's certain people that will read a book that, that won't go on the internet and read a blog. Um, and in this digital world, you might think that that's counterintuitive, but it, it's also just 
true. Um, like there's some weight to having, you know, physical book of someone, if, if this idea was worthy enough to be put in print, you know, it, it is, it is more permanent than something that someone can light up on the internet. And there's a lot of things on the internet that are hyper clickbait, you know, low attention span, and that this sends a signal of something different. It also gave me the opportunity to, um, you know, I like to think that like the substance of everything didn't change. Certain of the pieces I realized that I was like, I'm just being too redundant to another piece. So it gave me the opportunity to kind of better knit them together to, um, to, to refine in a way that just created more polish and focus around the writing. Because one of the things I recognized was over time, I'd never written materially before. I became a better writer, you know, through the process. So I'd say the ones that needed maybe some more work were probably some of the earlier ones rather than some of the later ones. Uh, I also probably spent more time in between the later ones and, and just kind of was able to, to refine the writing more because I was, you know, able to take more time. Uh, but I think in its totality, it's like each work is improved, but then as a whole, it provides one thing, one place where someone can go and answer the fundamental questions of Bitcoin, the, um, the, the common questions or misconceptions, and then also understanding the problem side. Because I do think it's critical to like you have to understand that there's a problem with the dollar to be able to see Bitcoin, but it's often – you got to be able to see Bitcoin before you can really see the problems with the dollar. And so having it all in like one kind of uh, aggregate work, it's like maybe somebody read or had something sent to them to read Bitcoin cannot be copied, but they didn't know that it was part of this greater nexus yeah. of, uh, of, a, of a framework. So, um, you know, kind of I felt like there was an ability to reach more people by putting it in physical form, uh, not necessarily in number, but in terms of the type of people that I felt could move the needle that, you know, thinking about, you know, guy who's a CEO of a business or somebody that's, that's, uh, created wealth that can have an influence amongst their circle that I might not be able to. Um, and that, you know, might only consume this content if it's, you know, in a print book form rather than, you know, being sent, you know, an article to a blog, even though, you know, to this point, I feel like, you know, has, you know, everything that's been online has made a big impact. I just want to continue to, to further that same mission. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember when I first got into Bitcoin, like reading the Nakamoto Institute from Pierre Richard and Michael Goldstein, some of the articles, I was like, dang, this, this makes a lot of sense. But I was like, it's just some random blog on the internet. Like, how could this be right? And then Bitcoin Standard came out. A lot of your articles came out. I read your articles. Like, the moment I, like, read the Nakamoto Institute, I was like, okay, how could this be wrong? And then, like, Bitcoin cannot be copied came out. And Bitcoin cannot be banned came out. And that was like, okay, you're, like, looking at how could we be wrong about Bitcoin and proving that we're probably not wrong. Well, and I, I think that it's just the... I mean, I think the point that you're making is the right one, which is that once Bitcoin like starts to click, like once there's a light bulb moment, we're like, oh, maybe this is not crazy. Like maybe this is hyper rational, hyper logical. The, when that light bulb goes off, you you don't have all of the the logic built and ordered, and you then from the point of the light bulb being clicked of some idea connecting to say maybe this thing is hyper real and consequential i need to go ask those logical questions to myself of like but what about this but what about that you know and there's a lot of those things and so because they're so logical um to ask those questions it's like you know to be able to present them in a way that's not you know 
perfect the way that everybody's logic works, but presents that logical case, in my mind, helps somebody go from that point of, you know, Bitcoin becoming possible in their mind to hardened in a more accelerated path by laying out, you know, just like each one of us has to ask those questions. Be like, if you can just give someone that roadmap that they would have gotten there either way because they would have logically ordered themselves, but we can give them a more efficient path yep. to getting there. And then same way I had the Bitcoin standard and was able to go, you know, give it out to, you know, 500 people, you know, over time. It's like, I started to connect this idea. It's like, it's the most leverageable way that I can use my time. Cause it's like, you put it here rather than me have to explain the Bitcoin standard to somebody, I can spend $15 or $20, which is better than, you know, tens of hours of my time. And then if people read it, then I can come back and be like, I'm happy to answer all your questions. But if you're not willing to invest the time yourself. And so that's kind of my, my thought process of what I started writing to say, like if I could devote 10 hours writing, but it could be consumed by 200 hours of people's time, that's the best use of my time. And then if they have questions, I can, you know, I'll be speaking to them on a more comparable plane to, to ask and answer marginal questions with the knowledge base. And now with a book, you know, I view it as the same, like you can sit there, you know, whoever might be out there listening to this and be like, okay, I could spend 20 hours speaking to one person or I could give them this book. And then when they're done with that book, I can start working through any residual questions rather than uh, having to start from scratch. So it's just kind of like, you know, leverage of time. Yeah. I'm curious, which of the essays that you wrote about and that are now sections in your book, which one was your, your favorite and why? Um, I think that, um, I would say Bitcoin obsoletes all other money is probably my most fundamental or consequential, um, like probably like deepest rabbit hole. Um, and so on one hand, I'd probably say that. So, uh, and maybe a cop out, but. I'll like say a few like Bitcoin is the great definancialization was like one that I, it was the last one that I wrote, but, I, but it's been one of the ones that I think that's connected the most because it, it's more at this kind of um, explaining the way the world or explaining the world the way that it is in this hyper financialized place and connecting for people why that, that hyper financialized world doesn't make sense why Bitcoin is the solution to it and how it's going to kind of alter that and really simplify things for people. Um, and so that, that would be a second one. And then um, Bitcoin is common sense. Like Bitcoin is common sense might be my favorite because it's like, um, it's the simplest in this like, Hey, Bitcoin, it can be as complicated or simple as you want to make it start with the simple um, of like, they're printing massive amounts of money. It's a problem. And like, it's an A versus B test. And if you if you start to connect with Bitcoin at that highest level, then you'll go down the rabbit hole elsewise. So it's like if there was probably a single favorite, it'd probably be Bitcoin's common sense. But it but it it's also not the the most like consequential or fundamental of of pieces at the same time. Gotcha. Was there any essay that you wrote that when producing the book you look back on and you're like wow, I really need to change this a lot or, or this was not written the way it should have been written? Um, yeah, I, I think that um, like um, probably Bitcoin is not a pyramid scheme. You know, I like for one reason, I like explained why it wasn't a pyramid scheme, but then, um, you know, spent more time just talking about why Bitcoin's monetary policy was optimal That's rather right. than kind of helping people 
really understand like at a fundamental level why Bitcoin wasn't a pyramid scheme uh, and spending more time there. So that was one. And then the other one was uh, Bitcoin fixes this, which is, you know, the solution to, to printing money that um, I used uh, Larry Summers, who was the guy who used to be the president of Harvard, treasury secretary, you know, kind of like if I had like a person in my mind that was part of the establishment problem, Larry Summers would probably be it. Um, he's up there with like Janet Yellen and, um, and Ben Bernanke, but he kind of crosses over, you know, kind of to the, the pure academic world. And um, that he had written a tweet thread about like um, why central banking might not be like the solution, you know, that everyone hopes it is and that there's these other fiscal problems. And like I kind of had used that piece to talk about why like um, why the, the macro establishment like – why they can't it's like not only a central bank not solution it's actually the problem and that they can't they can't connect that the, like they they're looking at themselves in the mirror they can't look at themselves in the mirror and say like i'm actually the problem you know the best they can do is say well maybe we're not the the, the perfect solution that everyone thinks that we are uh and so i like i was kind of like trying to, to say two things at once rather than what i had set out to do is just be like okay let me help you understand what qe actually is why it's a problem and why Bitcoin fixes this. And so those were probably the two that I was like, yeah, like um, that just wasn't as, you know, focused and needed to be changed the most to, you know, have its place in, in the actual book. So I said there wasn't unnecessary redundancy or there wasn't things that just weren't focused enough to like, you know, kind of um, be worthy of reading from like start to finish. Let's take a quick moment to talk about the Unchained IRA. With the Bitcoin price moving above 40000 the Unchained IRA is breaking records this month. With a Roth Bitcoin IRA, you don't pay capital gains on the appreciation of Bitcoin. Unchained offers a solution. They make it simple for you to set up a Bitcoin IRA while keeping control of your Bitcoin keys. Use code FRONTIER for $100 off and schedule your free consultation today at unchained.com slash IRA. Now back to the conversation. Yeah. How about the order of the essays? Like, did you think that, did you spend a lot of time, you know, being particular about what, which essay comes first, second, third, or did you just kind of throw them together? I'm sure you didn't do that, but like, yeah, how, I, did, you, how did you think about that? Um, I, um, I did. I think I thought the ordering was important. The segmentation was probably like, I started at the highest level to be like, how would I break these into parts first? And kind of like thinking about it as like, okay, the things that make the most sense to me are there's a section on fundamentals. There's a section on, you know, which I think of as the bottom up view of Bitcoin, like starting at Bitcoin and starting with the what is money questions. And then the common misconceptions of like the Bitcoin's not too volatile. Bitcoin um, cannot be banned. Bitcoin cannot be copied. Bitcoin's not for criminals. Those, and then Bitcoin versus the dollar. So it was kind of like kind of, breaking them up into what were like the key parts. Uh, and then that, so like the way I thought about it was the bottom up. Okay. Now, you know, what are the common questions to that, you know, poking the holes in that, that bottom up, you know, Bitcoin is money and then the, the problem, you know? And so it kind of like, you know, when I'm out there presenting, um, I focus on the problem first and that's really where I started the introduction. But then, you know, for me, it was more important to get somebody right into the fundamental, uh, like 
part of the book because it's like, okay, I can introduce the subject in, in the, in the, in the introduction to connect this to the financial crisis and the printing of money. But if my goal is actually to have someone intuitively develop an understanding, it's like start them with the fundamental because that's going to lead to questions. And one of the things I talk about in the introduction is like most people's path or really not most people, everyone's path to Bitcoin is not linear. And so the way that I've constructed the book is to like put it in the most logical order that I could piece together, but also communicate to the reader before they even get there that understanding Bitcoin is not linear. So when the when the questions pop up in your mind, each chapter is designed to be read as a standalone. Jump to that that place of like if the question in your mind is, well, you're telling me that Bitcoin is going to obsolete all their money in this first chapter, and I'm kind of jumping to the conclusion. Um, but it's too volatile to be money. It's like, go read Bitcoin's not too volatile. Um, but some people, when they read that Bitcoin's going to replace all of the money, they jump to like, well, this will never work. The government's going to ban it. It's like, hey, if that's your question, jump to Bitcoin cannot be banned. Um, and so I did put a lot of thought into the parts and then the ordering within those parts um, that I thought would be the most logical. But because getting to Bitcoin is not linear, you have to be like holding multiple ideas in your head at the same time and connecting them. And that's why if you focus on any one thing too closely, like you'll fail to see the forest for the trees that, um, that it's, it is logically ordered, but it's also communicated to the person reading it on the front end to be like, Hey, understanding Bitcoin is not linear. So you answering the questions that come to you, I've kind of forecasted what I think are the most logical way to present those. But each chapter is designed to be a standalone at the same time as part of a greater comprehensive framework answer the questions as they come to you because the ones that come to you first, it's impossible to predict it. You know, they're, they're logical. So the, the total questions, you know, kind of all, you know, kind of are addressed in my mind of the, the critical ones. Um, but I, you know, you know, was intentional about it, but also recognizing the fact that like, um, everybody's mind works a little bit differently and, and you're kind of jumping around from points. So, you know, don't fight that instinct. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like one of the cool things about this book is like you said, like it actually does tackle pretty much all of the most common objections or questions about Bitcoin. So it's, it's kind of like the perfect argument, you know, for Bitcoin, anything that someone says to you, if you're like, Oh, Bitcoin actually obsoletes all other money. And they respond with, they actually like engage you. Like you have the answers in this book basically. <laughs> yeah. That's the goal for it. Right. Yeah. Where it's like, it's this recognition that there's some fundamental things you need to start thinking about in the world of like these questions of what is money. But even once you get there, then there's the what ifs, you know, it's like yeah. if, if, if you're not asking the what ifs, you're not, you're, you're, you're probably not the pattern of virtually everyone. That's like, I got to like square off loose ends, you know, or tie off loose ends of like what could go wrong before I can, can accept something is true. You know, it's like process of elimination. Uh, so that's like the scientific method, you know, it's like eliminating. Um, and so, you know, by, by, you know, kind of there's this recognition too on the front end, which is like anybody that, that's gotten to the side of Bitcoin being money from a position of logic and reason, they, they almost definitionally had to cross every question. Yeah. You as somebody who's coming next had to answer. And if we can provide that roadmap in a way that's logically ordered, it's like we can reduce pain you know, kind of along the way and get to the, the ultimate destination faster. Definitely. The narratives for those common objection objections are becoming more and more clear and concise. And I think the books, the book's great. In the introduction, you, you talked about how you'd previously been reading like federal reserve transcript transcripts after they come out, you know, like five years later, do you still do that today at all? 
Uh, every Sunday morning. Oh, nice. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, um, no, I, I do, I do continue to pay attention to what the Fed's doing. Yeah. Um, I focus on it less just so I can because it's like I know the answer. You know, it's like one of those things where I was like. I also recommend that people read some Austrian economics, like some pure Austrian economics, like uh, Hayek was was um, consequential to my path, the road to serfdom particularly. Um, there are others who will, you know, anchor to uh, Mises, but um, I, you know, in my book, one, I try to talk in a very, like, um, plain vernacular, you know, to, to for, for a reason without getting too, like, academic or economic, um, but that... Um, that, you know, when I think about, you know, it's like Austrian economics, it was critical to my path to seeing why this macro managed world was broken. But once I got it, I, I like, I didn't feel like I needed to go read 10 other books that said something similar. It's like once I figured out that the Fed was broken and I went down that path once, I created something to help other people understand that. There's a, a part of, uh, you know, my precursor to Bitcoin where I wrote a, a piece called Ender's Game. Um, I might, you know, layer that into a future, you know, edition of Gradually and Suddenly. But it's like once I figured out the why it was broken, I could f spend less of my time continuing to pay attention to those people. Because then in 2020, they printed $5 trillion. And I was like, yeah, I knew they were going to do that. Keep, you know, keep focusing. Um, but what I would say is it was a very valuable exercise to me. So for people that are interested in it if they went and read my enders game i kind of pulled out some of those those excerpts uh from from that reading that were particularly valuable because um the exercise is relevant for someone who hasn't gone down it to like not only understand why you know what their psychology is but why what they're doing is broken i think the, probably the most important part of the exercise for me was one like i viewed it as this exercise of um i knew the ending of the story the people when you're reading the active history, they don't. And so you're, you have more information as a reader. And I use that as part of the framework to the introduction of gradually and suddenly was like, I, I maintain the historical record and those original pieces are online in the same form. So if anybody wants, you know, it's like if I'm republished, you know, kind of I've refined it, it's a book version, it's a new version, but the, none of the substance of any of the essays changed. And one of the reasons why I did that was, and like to make the point would be like, I would talk about things that were happening, say, in 2019, you know, but that the reader who's reading gradually and suddenly today has more information than I had at the time and then can judge my words and my logic better with the passage of time. Are the ideas that, that were being communicated four years ago with what's happened since then, are they true? And that it's actually the passage of time which allows people to test the reason and logic um and the way that that applied and helped me understand as i was reading the fed minutes was they would go through these exercises to say what do we expect to do in the future you know one of the questions was do we expect to lower interest rates for or raise interest rates or take money out of the um the system the unwind the balance sheet 15 out of 16 of them said unwind the balance sheet first then raise interest rates it's like you could argue what was the better thing to do, but the, the brass tax of it was 15 out of 16 of those people were wrong. What they forecasted they would do versus what they ultimately did was different. And so um, once you start to understand that on a historical objective basis that these people are wrong and that part of that 
objective and historical basis is actually the passage of time that the people that are out there talking about Bitcoin and why Bitcoin's money, part of what, you know, differentiates and defines it is the the accuracy of the, the information of the principles, the, the logic. Is the logic true or false? But part of it is tested by time, you know? And so um, that historical context for when I started writing was, was relevant. Um, the, the passage of time lends information that only the passage of time can. Um, and so it was an exercise. It was a valuable exercise for me when I did it. I'll probably, what I'll do is uh, because the, the transcripts come out five years after the fact, the next part probably period that's relevant is like what was happening in 2019. That was when like the, the like it was very predictable what they were walking into a buzzsaw, but not until 2024 will we get to, see what they were saying around the time when they walked into the buzzsaw because if they knew they were walking into a buzzsaw they wouldn't have done what they were doing yeah. um and so i'll probably go back you know once once another year passes and read what because i want to know what they were saying you know out of curiosity yeah. in 2019 but what they were saying in 2018 like i guess towards the end of 2018 maybe started to become relevant but um the buzzsaw really happened in 2019 and that's what induced the five trillion of printing money not covid yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I guess at this point we we kind of know the the end game. At least Bitcoin people know the end game with with the dollar. Do you think most people like intuitively know that the dollar is designed to debase forever? Um, I no, I don't think that. I th well, I, I think everyone is engineered to know that the dollar loses money, and they they um, consciously react to it. But I think that they, while they're consciously reacting to it, they're also react reacting to it irrationally because they don't actually know the end consequence. So like, and what I mean by that is they, the vast majority of people are, are know that the dollar is engineered to lose money. They rationally say, well, I'm going to own something that's not the dollar because this is going the wrong way. They don't connect the idea that it can't go on forever and that it actually doesn't make sense to hold very little cash you need to be holding more cash, but cash that doesn't lose its value. And that while you're acting what you believe to be rationally of like, I'm going to hold very little cash and hold real estate. It's like, that's going to end very poorly for you because uh, money serves a very different function than real estate. You're holding an illiquid asset. And while you were trying to solve your problem of my dollars being debased, you went to the first derivative of it, which was like, let me get something that just isn't the dollar that should, you know, give me more dollars rather than recognizing that the dollar is actually broken. It can't go on forever. We're on this accelerating path to debasement, which ends in ultimately hyperinflation and that you need to actually create a solution for yourself. Otherwise, uh, your decision, your first rational decision just was like, you know, one step too short to actually solving your terminal problem. Uh, and so I think it's like they know the dollar's engineered to lose value. They, they act accordingly, but that doesn't make their actual ultimate decision rational because they're not seeing the full picture. They think that it can go on forever. That's a good you point. Know? Yeah. Yeah, I guess are there any other like unexpected symptoms of, of broken money? Like like you said, pretty much people just chase into equities no matter what valuation, DCAing with their 401k or whatnot, or keep buying real estate no matter the valuation. Are there like other symptoms that people like 
even Bitcoiners may not be aware of? Or is that like the main thing? Like people are just chasing anything else except the dollar. Um, I, I think that it's the it's it's the rational first order behavior to take is to 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 get out and to get to something else that you think will offset the implications of that. Um, I think that you know without going too rabbit hole ish, I think that like and to focus on like the individual decision points, I think that there there is this like broader cultural fracturing that ha- has happened as a function of the money being broken. Um, and that until people put their finger on that as the, the root of the problem, um, they're out there searching for answers, both personally as a community, as a state, as a country. Um, and that uh, until pe- more people figure out that like the root of so many social problems also originates from the, the broken economic system that's tied to a broken money system. I think most people know that the economic structure is broken. Most people don't tie it to the fact that it's actually the money that's broken. Um, that the way that that applies to an individual is, you know, the individual goes to work and then they have to become a stock picker after that. But even before that, what they probably don't realize is the thing that they're actually pursuing in, in most cases is not the thing that they would actually enjoy pursuing, that they're doing it because this economic structure is broken. And that one of the things that, that I talk about in Bitcoin is the great definancialization is this idea that there's something cathartic about starting to save, not take risk, but save in a form of money that is actually engineered to align with your own incentives. And the cathartic part about it is that when it when your money is working in your favor rather than against it, you can actually start to focus on only working on the things that you actually want to do on a day-to-day basis rather than working to pay bills, yeah. you know, because those are two very different things. And once your money starts to, to, to work in your favor rather than actively be engineered against you, then you actually start thinking about money less. You start, you know, and you, and, and you, you start, you stop thinking about how am I going to pay the bills less? And what that allows you to do is actually create focus on like, what do I want to be doing today? And not in the, you know, leisure sense, but in the, um, what do I want to produce? You know, like, if I if I didn't have to focus on paying the bill, you know, the rent next month, what would I other be wise be doing with my time? Um, and you know, you functionally gravitate to doing things that you enjoy um, and that actually deliver value rather than just making money. And there's a difference between those things. So I think the the broader kind of wake up moment is like ah, like yeah, this isn't just about bean counting and dollars and cents and and making money. It's about time being scarce and how do I spend that in a way that is most rewarding and fulfilling to myself because that probably actually delivers more value to people around me. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, a good product or a good money or a good product in general, it's like, if it's a great product, you don't really think about it that much. You just use the product and it, your life's better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the the pieces that, that you, the essays that you put together was banning Bitcoin and you have an interesting quote there and it talks about how it implies Bitcoin being so successful as money that it threatens the government's monopoly on money. When that becomes apparent, then the government will ban it. So how close are we to government potentially banning Bitcoin? Are we still far, far away? Well, what I would say is not every government's going to do that. I think that, um, that the, and I think that that point, uh, also has the right context. I just want to kind of yeah. clarify for folks that's like 
if you start to rationally think about this, because one of the common things is like once this starts to dawn on people that like, wait, Bitcoin is finitely scarce. And if, if uh, one of the parts I make in the um, Bitcoin obsolete all the money is this fundamental idea that economic systems converge on one form of money for very fundamental economic reasons. And if there's a form of money that can't be printed, that has a terminal rate of growth of zero, and economic systems converge on a single form of money, that form of money is going to replace the other forms of money. Um, and that, um, you know, taking the United States as an example, while there's nothing American about the U.S. dollar, a lot of people, you know, have uh, disassociated that core idea that, you know, America is based on individual rights and that there's probably nothing more American than Bitcoin. They associate something about the dollar as being American. But the, the rational point that I make is when people start to, it starts to dawn on them that Bitcoin obsoletes all of the money and it's going to replace the dollar. There's an instinctual question, which is, well, the government's never going to allow that, you know, and, and they're going to ban it. And, and the logical point that I help connect for people is when, when do they connect that, you know, and it's when many more multiples of people have figured out that Bitcoin is better, a better solution to the money problem than the dollar. And, um, and so if you are a rational economic actor that has figured out this idea of why Bitcoin could potentially replace the dollar and that it wouldn't become a pressing, quote, observable threat until, say, 10x, 100x the number of people uh, have figured that out. What are you to do as a rational economic actor? With that knowledge, say, I'm going to pass because it only happens – you know, in the future, if all these other people figure it out, well, you're one of those people. So you could have either made the decision, you know, in the past to say, I don't want to have that problem or held the asset that's maintained purchasing power as those clowns printed your money to zero. Like what does the rational economic actor do? There's only one answer. It's to own the form of money uh, and to protect themselves because then you have a decision in the future. If the government were to come and say, well, this is threatening our monopoly on money, uh, we don't like that. Give us the form of money that's been working or you can't use it. That The rational person in every case holds that money because they'd rather have the decision in the future, what do I do? Yeah. Do I go to a place like El Salvador that's more free or does my country end up being one of those places that recognizes that and say like, okay, I can either fight this or I can cut off my nose to spite my face because if I try to ban it, you know, good, smart people are either going to flee and my problems just become worse because I admit that my money's shit and broken. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that, so, so that's, that's, that, that was like the logical case that I was making. It's like this thing only threatens a monopoly. If more people come to the same conclusion, that's a better form of money. If you are primed with that information, the only rational decision is to act. And then, um, those people in government will also be aware of that fact when they reason through it. And so most people, most governments will figure out this logically ordered as well. Like if I try to ban this thing, it's going to f fuel the fire and it's the fait accompli to my Fugazi money. Um, so might, might not want to do that. Um, but those that do will actually fuel the fire. And where I think we're at is to, to be more tangible. I think that the fed and the treasury know that Bitcoin is like, uh, something that they need to, have on their radar. I don't think 
you know, if you, if you, cause if you just put, you know, they're not of more intelligence than the average person in the United States. And if I was to look around and say one out of a hundred people don't fundamentally understand Bitcoin, but a lot more than one out of a hundred are paying attention. So I think that that's where we're at, that they're like, um, we know we got a weak leg to stand on, you know, we're printing all this money. We've tried to raise interest rates, but inflation is still out of control. Um, we're going to have to print more money if we're honest with ourselves. And these people, these Bitcoiners out there are saying like, you know, this is a form of money that can't be printed and those clowns are over there printing money. And so we're at the point where I think that it's on their radar. They want to start pushing back, but they don't credibly believe in their own minds that Bitcoin is, can actually replace the dollar. So we're probably another cycle you know, another 10x wave of adoption where it's like, I think there's probably a psychological crossing of like when Bitcoin's over 100,000, you know, in fiat terms, even though at the end of the day, and I always like to reinforce, like, doesn't matter what the dollar value is, like the dollar's going away and we're going to be buying, you know, beef and gas and, you know, medicine and healthcare and water for Bitcoin. But there's probably something psychological when it hits up. 100,000 and then also when it's consistently over a trillion where it's like it's harder to deny like the the absolute size of it and the, the amount of people that have to arrive to that consensus for that to be the case is a kind of input to those people figuring out that like oh you know this is this is actually threatening so um I don't think we're there yet I think we're probably like one more cycle away for it being more credible where they're having to realize the fact that like um this thing might not just be here to stay. This thing might be existential to, you know, us running this, um, you know, Fugazi money. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like by the time that they do figure it out, it'll be too late for them to. I, th I think, I think that's almost definitionally and logically the point. Yeah. It's like it becomes that because individual economic actors look at the equation and adopt a over B for that to become apparent that it's, quote, a threat to their monopoly power on money, enough people in society have had to first reject the the bad and broken form of money for the good and better form of money. And that so it's like it's, it's dependent on things happening in the future, getting to a point where if 10x the number of people adopt Bitcoin, Bitcoin's 10x as large. Like the Bitcoin hash rate has increased from 5x hashes to 500, you know, 100 times growth go another hundred times out, you know, like as more people figure it out, Bitcoin's in more places all over the world, you know, more people have it harder, functionally harder to stop, more decentralized. Uh, and only at that point does it become readily apparent to people. So um, if someone has figured out the why they could logically order in that way, why it could possibly happen, that it starts with a fixed supply, why the fixed supply is defensible, then they answer their own question for themselves as to why Bitcoin can't be banned. Yeah. Because it doesn't mean that some moron government doesn't try to make people's lives harder by making its use illegal, but just the same way that the government couldn't ban, like they could make the use of gold illegal, they couldn't make gold go away. Gold was a phenomenon in the world, same, same idea. Bitcoin's just a greater utility and harder functionally to stamp out. Yeah, for sure. Talking with like Senator Lummis and Michael Saylor, it seems like they think Bitcoin and the U.S. dollar are going to coexist for for decades. Would you disagree with that, or would you agree? I would disagree. Okay. Yeah, and I think that um, 
I, I understand the position that both of those people are in. Um, I don't, I don't know Michael Saylor well, of, just from afar, um, but he's got 170,000 Bitcoin. He's got a large target on his back, a larger target than myself. Uh, and if he was out there saying the same thing as I'm saying, you know, that might not be good for him. Yeah. Um, but I also, I think he, I, I think both of them know, you know, yeah. and, I, and I think probably more so in a way that it's like, it's not just deep down that they know. I think that they more logically order it, but uh, are in positions where it's more difficult to, to say that. Um, and I think, you know, in, in Senator Lomas's side, which I, someone I know better, um, I think that it's similarly, it's, it's caught in this position of understanding that there's something very broken about um, the, the federal debt, the amount of spending, and that it all translates back to um, having to print money to get out of that and knowing that the Bitcoin's a solution to it. Whereas also sitting in that position, um, there is this false um, dilemma, but it's still a, a reality and a dilemma that that there's a narrative that anything that isn't the dollar is against the interests of Americans. And I think that um, you can't deny that that reality exists. And if you're trying to um, change hearts and minds there to be tactical, you might have to take that approach of not over the head saying, hey, this is going to replace the dollar. But I, but I do think, you know, the position that I take is it's like, I'm just being honest. It's like, this is what yeah. I, this is what I believe. It's not so much what I want to happen from an emotional standpoint. It's like, this is the way that I see the world going. So if I'm, if I'm describing it in a way that is inconsistent with the way that I see it, that uh, I personally am going to be less effective because I'm going to be all, less authentic to saying something I don't believe but i'm also just like hyperly ordered on a logical basis to be like look if money converges to one and like if you look at if you look at the way history is played out as well as form the logical basis as to why you're like well yeah clearly like like if we have to trade we have to have the same form of money and it's like if it's me to you and then you to jose and then the next person and bitcoin can't actually be printed if it is credibly scarce everyone's going to adopt it. And then like a dollar sitting alongside of it or putting a dollar on top of Bitcoin, it's like it's functionally worse than just the Bitcoin itself. Um, and so, and then I think, you know, the thing that I try to prime people with is like, if you actually think about Bitcoin, like what it is, what it represents, like, like one, there's nothing less American than the U.S. dollar. Like this idea that, uh, if you like read the constitution, but before that, if you read the declaration of independence of like these, you know, inherent rights, um, and like this idea that the, the rights of the individual are self-evident, not granted by a government, you know? Um, but that also in this like more hierarchical idea that if you want to have a strong society that you better protect the rights of the individual. And that's what that's what government is there to do. Like that is Bitcoin. Like it it puts the power back in the individual's hands, and it recognizes that if the individual is empowered, um, and basically this idea of decentralized, like you can't like Bitcoin's pos is possible to change, but functionally not. Like not to change the most critical things of it. That 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 protects the individual's rights, and that that the whole is protected because the individual is protected. Uh, you can't print my money. You know, you can print your own money. 
but um, I can opt into something that, that you can't print. Uh, and that when people start to figure out that like there's nothing more American than that from a foundational level, like there's literally no um, technological innovation that could be like when you start to see the parallels of like this check and balance system, um, I think people would be better served to, to, to lean into that more, to be like nothing more American than Bitcoin yeah. um, rather than, you know, saying something that, that may be tactical to get through the front door, but ultimately it, you know, I don't think is actually accurate. Uh, and if they kind of embrace the side of, um, yeah, like it, you know, putting the rights of the individual first and, and enshrining those and protecting them is more important than, you know, something that realistically had no basis of the founding of our country, not American dollars, not patriotic, that's just a false narrative. Um, you got, you need good money to survive and let's put the priority on that. And this thing, Bitcoin, you know, all the way up and down as, as American as it gets, let's lean into that. hundred percent. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Karl Marx, like his plagues of co communism, one of them is like establishing a central bank to be a lender of last resort. So it's like Bitcoin is free yeah. money. And like, that, and that's yeah. what I think is like, like, you know, reinforcing for those people to like, you know, um, like recognize that like that's the way it's like the, 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 the socialist and communist destruction, the way that these resources have been centralized and controlled by the government is via the money, via the central. It's like, it is the function of the dollar to, to so like, cause, cause I think that, that those are the values that, that a lot of people know and have, which is like, you know, um, the right of the individuals, the thing that this whole thing is built on, uh, that is not endowed by a government, um, and that we have to, the government exists to protect those rights that like communism and socialism is the opposite. It's like this, this flawed belief system that somehow the collective is, is benefited by the collective when in reality, it's just some crony corrupt people that want power and to dictate what everyone else does. But like for the, for the people that are more libertarian or conservative that, that can see this from, for what it is, they should be able to get to the logical extension that the dollar is actually the thing that has set us down this destructive path of um, functional communism and socialism masquerading under a capital system and that Bitcoin is actually the thing that, that fixes that, that fly in the ointment. You know, like the U.S. system of governance, in my opinion, was is revolution, you know, not just revolutionary in the sense that there was a revolution, but like this idea that, you know, no individual is a subject of anybody else. Um, and that rather than throw the baby out with the bathwater, it's like, Hey, let's just fix to fly in the women. Cause I'm pretty confident that the founding fathers, one thing that they didn't foresee was some way that the money got completely co-opted. It was completely co-opted by technological innovation. And then ultimately that led to digital money that was QE and now Bitcoin fixes it. And when, so when you recognize that it's like, no, like this, the centralization of the money supply is, is single greatest thing that, you know, like you point out, you know, in, in, in uh, Marx's works of like create a central bank, co-op the money, and then you can centralize the resources in the way that you want more efficiently than possible. It's like, that's the dollar. Yeah. So stop leaning into this thing that the dollar is patriotic. Stop having to apologize for it. Recognize that it's the fly in the ointment that's breaking an otherwise incredibly sound governance structure. If the founding fathers didn't understand that the money could be totally co-opted and they actually, you know, understood the folly of it, 
like take the fly of the ointment, like lean into the fact that Bitcoin's American and that the U.S. dollar in its current construction of being controlled by 12 people and, um, you know, the, the economic interests that are behind those 12 people uh, is actually the thing that's un-American. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last question, then we can probably wrap it up. You were at Unchained. Now you're building ZapRite. Uh, what are you most excited about ZapRite? Um, you know, I, I really view it as a logical extension. You know, I think like when I distill down my thinking of Bitcoin, it's like Bitcoin's money. Um, you know, if, if, if money is of value because it's the most efficient way to intermediate a series of exchanges present to future, uh, money has to store value between those two points in time. In order to store value, you need to make sure that that money cannot be lost because if, like I'd like to say, if money can hold its value from point A to point B in the future, but you lost your money, that money didn't store value. And that's why kind of when, when we set off to, um, or when I set off to work on Unchain, it was like custody is the first order of ensuring that money is a store of value because it's what protects the safekeeping. Um, payments, it's like how you get money into that custody solution. You know, um, it's, it's, it's a, it, you know, it's like the other side of the same coin. Um, and that uh, I do think that, you know, people first have to understand why Bitcoin stores value in order to then want to accept Bitcoin's payment. But for me, when, you know, really kind of like heightened my focus around it when Silicon Valley Bank failed and the slew of bank failures was like, one, I don't think that, you know, it's easy to be complacent, but one, I don't think we have as much time, even, you know, if I'm defaulting to my own thought process, which is a lot shorter of a time frame than I think most people think, but it's like the alarm bells are going off and that, um, that we need the, the rails of access in addition to just the, how do we secure it once we, once we get out. And so, um, you know, what I'm most excited about ZapRite is, you know, kind of carrying the same message that I've been carrying, but helping to empower people to understand that, um, the, the solution is, is, is twofold. It's like, yeah, you got to have Bitcoin to, um, to have the lifeboat and to, to opt out of that fiat system that's broken, that's working against your incentives. But if you've just gotten in the lifeboat and then you don't keep rowing, like we're not getting anywhere. And that um, focusing on the, the value delivery side of, um, I am also empowered to convert my time and energy directly to Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, it's a great compliment to being able to have the fiat rails, you know, like if I was like sitting down and talking to someone like Michael Saylor, it's like, Hey, you just bought 500 million. How about sell your goods and services for Bitcoin? Because the rail is the, is also the point of failure. If the currency is at risk, which it is, then the rails of that currency are at risk. Um, and that we need them both to work in tandem. It's not distinguishing between Bitcoin, the monetary asset, and Bitcoin, the, you know, kind of as a network, it's like, well, the thing that's a store of value is only a store of value if you can freely exchange that in the future. And if you are only focused on the dollar rails, that that those dollar rails are going the way of the dodo bird just as the currency is. And more people need to be hyper-focused on uh, that future exchange, which, you know, it's very logical that in this world uh, or this day-to-day um, that, you know, the dollar is the most liquid asset. Bitcoin's becoming the most liquid asset. It makes a lot of sense that most liquid assets pair against each other and traded, but the future of Bitcoin's liquidity is goods and services. Not only is that what um, makes it the most liquid good, but it also creates the greatest diversity of 
liquidity. And when you think about that on an individual basis as a business, it's like you can either have one pipe that is your single point of failure. If you bank with Silicon Valley Bank, you got that that bank as a as a single point of failure. It's no more anymore. But like, you know, pick your bank, you know, Bank of America, City, even JP Morgan. It's like realistically all these big banks are just you know, inheriting all of the liabilities of the legacy system. So you might think that they're more secure, but ultimately they are your single point of failure to accessing your customers. Um, and that Bitcoin's this hyper redundant system that never shuts down. And that if you can start to think about the mapping, like either your customers have direct access to you or uh, their way do, to get to you is this single frail pipe um, that the need is more present than, than most people might think that they need to create that redundancy in, in, on the rail side and that the work that we're doing at ZapRite is basically, you know, like um, not only helping to build the tool to help more people be able to access that more easily, but also helping connect the ideas for people as to why it's important because the idea of why it's important is what will help um, accelerate the path there to to um getting people to turn those tools on um and so i'm excited you know it's like it's like i, I feel like i'm carrying the same message and, and carrying the same mission um that i always did at unchain obviously still a big supporter of unchain still a, a client of unchain and is helpful to to the team as, as i you know can be um whenever i can be and now i'm kind of you know working on the same mission just you know the, the rail side of payments and, and the, and the rail side of payments is part and parcel to, to Bitcoin being a store of value. So. Yeah. I love it. Where can people uh, learn more about ZapRite and, and your book if they want to buy it? So um, ZapRite, uh, ZapRite.com. Um, I like to think like Zaps, like um, if you're familiar with those, like, nah, but ZapRite, <laughs> like cool. Um, so Z-A-P-R-I-T-E. So write R-I-T-E, all one word, ZapRite.com. Uh, um, learn about it. It's a pretty straightforward website. Um, we're basically helping people uh, enable Bitcoin payments in both a, both a non-custodial, which is a big part of our focus way, non-custodial, but also custodial if people aren't ready to take their position, their own keys. But the idea is, um, you know, we basically help facilitate it in as easy way possible. You don't have to run a server, but you can hold your keys um, and you can focus on your business while we help enable the Bitcoin payments. Money never routes through us. We're not a money transmitter. Um, we're not a payment processor. We're just enabling Bitcoin payments. And we're really focused on people that grok Bitcoin, but that, you know, the psychological barrier to starting to accept Bitcoin payments might be too high, helping to reduce those barriers. So if, if you're out there, check us out at the website, zapright.com. And then on the book side, uh, best place to buy it is uh, thesafehouse.com. That's Safe Deems, uh, Safe Dean Amoose, the author of the Bitcoin Standards website incredibly appreciative of him for not only uh, all the work that he's done personal help that he's given to me and in, in helping get this book uh, to market uh, that's uh, the safe spelled s-a-i-f house h-o-u-s-e dot com that's the exclusive place to buy it um, really excited to be um, having it be distributed there supporting him there but then also having him help me get the word out and get the book out so the safe house.com you can also follow me on my blog gradually then suddenly dot xyz i post there from time to time um, but if you want to buy the book go to thesafehouse.com awesome well parker this is awesome it was great to meet you in person and i'm glad we could uh sit down and record yeah appreciate the opportunity joe awesome